said, shut the f*** up, I'm trying to record. <laughs> All right. This is Milana Jamee Jackson, and you're listening to Duster Radio Network. <laughs> <laughs> you just made the blooper reel. Hey, this is Tony Valley, And I'm David Gavry. And we host a podcast called Jacking Off with Tony Valley, where every week we interview poker players and game runners about the ins and outs of the underground world of poker. And we discuss strategy, philosophy, and other topics. You can listen to us on the Jester Radio Network every Thursday at 9 a.m. at jackkingoff.com, or you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. This is Xavier Lamont. And this is Ed Towns from the Lousy Motherfuckers Podcast. Hey, listening to Essay Questions. Hey, welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of Essay Questions. Thank you for making the same mistake twice. Uh, I am Joe. And I'm Josh. And we're your hosts, obviously. So this is the the show where we read something and then use that as an excuse to to talk about something that, you know, might be tangentially related to it. And differently from the first season, if you listen to that, thank you, by the way. Yes, thank you. Instead of doing a different topic each and every episode, we're attempting to make the whole season feel a little more cohesive. And we're approaching one subject, which if you've listened to the last episode of the last season, you already know. But the subject we're going to be talking about is the the alt-right that, you know, you've probably heard far too much about already with, if you read anything on the internet. Joe, what was it that made you want to – well, basically, you kind of came up with the idea for this season. And then with a, a little help from you, I kind of curated the the choice of the essays. What was it that made you want to devote like an entire season to this this topic? As we were going through the first season, we talked about what are we going to do differently for the second season, not in that we hated what we did uh, any more than we should have been expected to, <laughs> but that we wanted to you know, try to evolve the show a little bit. And one of the, the ways we thought about doing that is making the second season about one thing or feel, again, a little bit more cohesive, like one big project. And what I had really been into at that time Specifically, that we're talking about four or five months ago, right now, we're we're recording January sixteenth, twenty eighteen. Happy New Year, by the way, or more specifically, Happy Martin Luther King Day. What I was really interested in that time was I, I was really obsessed with uh, the idea of the alt right and extreme right wing culture. I mean, I'd spent I talked about this in the outro a little bit. I talk I, I spent a lot of time uh, checking out the Daily Stormer, which if you're interested in the contemporary happenings of American neo-Nazis, that's that, that's the, where you should go. Uh, and other places like that, just to try to get a better understanding, not just as a curious observer, but as someone who is really trying to figure out what about these people can I understand in a relatable way, in a way where they're not just one-dimensional buffoons but where they're three-dimensional people who have fallen off a path in a way and at the time we didn't know exactly just how exhaustive the coverage of the alt-right was going to become i still think we can do a really unique and interesting take on what the alt-right is and why it is again by making sure that these are three-dimensional people we're talking about not one-dimensional enemies and just the idea that this is something that lives with inside human beings and has been with us forever. To pretend that ultra-far-right views, fascist views, have are, are a new phenomenon is, is just preposterous. I mean, this has been with us since the dawn of human civilization. And so there's maybe it's just something that's cyclical in how we grow as not just as individuals but as a culture— but maybe there's something deep-rooted inside all of us that seeks authoritarianism, that something about this is desirable. And I wanted to understand this subculture in a way just so I can better understand myself. And very selfishly, uh, very similar to the first season, while kind of the overall theme I kind of came up with, Josh did much of the grunt work in terms of organizing 
and figuring out what we're going to be talking about and what essays we're going to be reading. As, as I've said numerous times, Josh is far more well-read than I am. He's far more uh, familiar with the literary world, not specifically the alt-right world. I'm, I'm sure I'm the resident expert <laughs> on that in comparison. No one knows more about Nazism than me. Yeah. So Josh put together most of what we're going to be reading this season, and it's pretty brilliant the way he put it all together. I'm not sure I can. I'm not sure I can live up to the adjective brilliant, um, but I will uh, try to at least make it, as you said, something that is supplementary to, complementary to, and maybe also maybe more illuminating than, uh, as you said, Joe, a lot of the uh, kind of coverage that has just uh, flocked to this subject. And the, you know, I think that and putting this uh, list together and putting the the kind of the program where the syllabus for the the season together like reading all of the alt right explainers reading all the kind of mainstream coverage that is meant to in a very click beatificated way that's not a word but you know in a way that's definitely like kind of fits into the template of like the buzzfeed list you know here are the 10 things you need to know about the alt right eight things you need to know about the alt right and trump like you know it's it's all of these things that are meant to like you know, you take 45 minutes out of your day, and now you understand this very marginal but alarmingly consequential um, internet counterculture, which obviously that's not the way the world works, and that's certainly not the way that something as weird and as um, kind of on the margins as the alt-right um, is best understood. Basically, rather than focusing on like what these movements that all kind of come together, what all these different kind of countercultures that all come together, what they believe. I wanted to focus on the kind of individual case studies of different figures, different personalities and people within the alt-right or within movements that kind of gave rise to the alt-right. Um, and I think that is, it, it kind of gives us like a, hopefully like kind of an interesting um, kind of micro history of the American political culture of not just the last, you know, five or 10 years, but really going back to the 90s. And also it, uh, it, it helps us raise, uh, or not raise, but grapple with some of the questions uh, you were mentioning, Joe, about can we understand these people in a way that is not, again, not sympathetic in the sense of like, you know, identifying with them or treating them as like victims of, you know, their own ideas. Cause I think that's, you know, way outside of what we would, uh, you know, what our interpretation of this phenomenon would be, but more like given that at the very least, I think you and I, Joe, both share a certain sense that like the, the mainstream of American politics American um, kind of news and cultural media um, that many of these kind of like institutions that the alt-right is attacking or rebelling against have indeed kind of lost their moral authority. Like the idea that um, people would become disillusioned with the things that are kind of normative in society, the kind of cultural and political status quo that makes sense. I don't see how you could not be angry at the way things are. I don't see how you could not be outraged at, um, you know, the way that politics and culture are reported and covered in the kind of corporate and kind of legacy media. I don't see how you could not be outraged with um, the political status quo. I don't think uh, it's possible to not be ill at ease with the way that you know, technology has affected our personal lives and all of these other kind of interrelated phenomena. Like the starting point that most of these people have, their anger and disillusionment and kind of alienation from the culture that we live in, the kind of capitalist consumer culture that we all participate in, whether we like it or not, is perfectly understandable and easy to identify with. So how did they get from that to these beliefs that are not just like way outside what most of us would consider but are just in in kind of instinctively morally repellent to most people hopefully to almost all people if they really understood what they are and what they mean every essay that we're looking at this season with uh the exception of some of the optional readings is focused on a specific figure um and each essay kind of belongs to in some way the kind of subgenre of the essay that's kind of like a profile of an individual person. 
Um, these are not like objective reports, although there is a lot of reporting and journalism that's kind of connected with the genre. But each writer is also giving their interpretation and their kind of like analysis of who this person is, what their ideas are, how they kind of came to be a figure that is worth covering to begin with. Yeah, and I don't think any of the the episodes as you as you're you know as we're intentionally structuring them is is going to be specifically and only about the the person that is being highlighted it's that that person is emblematic or at least representative of a larger movement as a whole right like Dylan Roof doesn't just represent Dylan Roof he represents yes. any sort of radicalization that realizes itself in a violent form his you know his episode is going to embody that as an as an entity in and of itself it's not simply going to be about him and i think that's how we're approaching every episode this season and another brief, uh, subtle departure from the way we did in the first season was every episode was built around one essay now it's built around a person instead which means instead of you have to read this one thing we're going to give you a short list of things you can read if you were so interested if not we're going to try to make sure that the episode can kind of stand on its own two legs without you having to read it but you're more than welcome to read what we quote unquote assign for each episode just to try to enrich the experience, but we should be able to give you a pretty good idea of what was in the essay without having read it yourself. And kind of as the the introduction to the season, Josh referenced uh, Angela Nagel a moment ago. We're reading, we've already read uh, her book, Kill All Normies, which came out, I believe, at some point last year. I mean, it definitely came out at some point last year, um, which is essentially a really scattershot yet comprehensive understanding of the alt-right and basically online that online subculture in and of itself and we wanted to structure not just the introductory episode which you're listening to right now uh around but the entire season is kind of built around this a little bit just using this kind of as if for lack of a better word the bible for what we're going to be following for the season in terms of the different people she mentioned i mean you've heard a bunch of the people that josh just mentioned we're going to be basing episodes around they're covered even if just in passing in this book so if if i was going to say if you're going to read one thing about the alt-right or in particular if you're going to re- read one thing to try to follow along what we're talking about this season this is the book i would recommend it's about 120 pages it's not too long and it's certainly not too expensive so if again you don't have to read anything anymore you know I mean, you, you don't have to do anything it's your life you're you're going to die so live where you want to live <laughs> but if you were so interested in reading anything about this subject or about following along with us as we talk about things this is the one i would recommend and going forward i think this is the only one you would probably have to buy the rest of these are all available online oh yeah so but today we're going to we're going to talk about this book and just try to get into kind of all the all the topics that it brings up in a I don't want to say superficial or surface level way but we're going to get more in depth as the season goes forward but that's what we're talking about today absolutely and then uh, as usual in the show notes every single um, kind of main essay the essay that profiles the figure uh, will be there along with a couple you know optional readings although as Joe said they're all optional I think you'll be able to follow along just fine even if you don't read them and again unfortunately a lot of these figures are people that you're probably already familiar with. Um, and then in lieu of uh, a link to um, the actual book itself, since like Joe said, it's the only one you would have to buy or go out and find, um, in today's show notes, you'll see a link to a couple reviews of the book that I think are um, especially uh, kind of germane and helpful and you know provide some insight, not just into um, you know the alt-right itself, but kind of the reception of this book and how that uh, kind of reveals the way that um, both the alt-right and the kind of the Tumblr left, the so-called identity politics left, which I don't really like that moniker, but I think we all know who we're talking about, the way that they kind of respond to being analyzed and criticized in this way. Uh, so it's one from the excellent Los Angeles Review of Books by Catherine Liu, and then there's another one um, by Leif Weatherby from Jacobin, uh, which is a publication that Nagel herself has also written for on a number of occasions. So hopefully you guys will uh, pick up a copy and, you know, read along. I mean, read along is not right the way to put it. Just read it and think for yourself. And we're going to get into this episode where we're going to talk about this book, and it's going to kick off the whole season, which hopefully you'll come along for the ride for. 
Uh, thank you guys for listening, and we will be back in a couple minutes. Hi, this is Alex Sakanikos from Bad Shotty, where we roast all the favorite fantasy characters that you can even imagine. Very uh, fan-driven. You can email us at realbadshorty at gmail.com, and we will roast anything and everything that you want us to roast. You just send them in and make sure they're not real, and we will give them the old good huh-huh. All right? Here on the Jester Radio Network. Thank you. The once obscure call-out culture of the left, emanating from Tumblr-style, campus-based identity politics, reached its peak during this period, in which everything from eating noodles to reading Shakespeare was declared problematic and even the most mundane acts misogynist and white supremacist. While taboo and anti-moral ideologies festered in the dark corners of the anonymous internet, the de-anonymized social media platforms where most young people now develop their political ideas for the first time, became a panopticon in which the many lived in fear of observation from the eagle eye of an offended organizer of public shaming. At the height of its power, the dreaded call-out, no matter how minor the transgression or how well-intentioned the transgressor, could ruin your reputation, your job, or your life. The particular incarnations of the online left and right that exist today are undoubtedly a product of this strange period of ultra-Puritanism. These obscure online political beginnings became formative for a whole generation and impacted mainstream sensibilities and even language. The hysterical liberal call-out produced a breeding ground for an online backlash of irreverent mockery and anti-PC, typified by charismatic figures like Milo. But after crying wolf throughout these years, calling everyone from saccharine pop stars to Justin Trudeau a white supremacist and everyone who wasn't with her a sexist, the real wolf eventually arrived in the form of the openly white nationalist alt-right who hid among an online army of ironic in-jokey trolls. When this happened, nobody knew who to take literally anymore, including many of those in the middle of this new online far-right themselves. The alt-right figures that became celebrities during this period made their careers exposing the absurdities of online identity politics and the culture of lightly thrown claims of misogyny, racism, ableism, fat phobia, transphobia, and so on. However, offline, only one side saw their guy take the office of U.S. president, and only one side had in their midst faux-ironic Sieg Heil saluting, openly white segregationists, and genuinely hate-filled, occasionally murderous misogynists and racists. And that is from the introduction of Angela Nagel's Kill All Normies. Um, and of course, the period she's talking about is the kind of online culture um, leading up to the election of Donald Trump. I liked how it didn't just have... There was no axe. It was grinding. It was genuinely inquisitive. And it didn't lay the the blame entirely on the alt-right itself for its own creation it blamed not it and blames the wrong word it tried to explain as best as she could how kind of counterculture like aggressively counterculture has grown not just on the right but how it's also a tactic that the left has used for generations to push cultural agendas to to push ideas forward and how in kind of an equal but opposite reaction has resulted on the right it's just gone to horrifying extremes because obviously the things that they're espousing are terrifying to anyone who's you know relatively sensible or anywhere close to being in their crosshairs which is you know a disturbingly large number of people but it doesn't seem to it would have been far easier for her to write something that just took the position that these are the enemy. This is where they come from. Look how awful they are. It, it seemed to come at it with a very even hand, very much committed to the idea of let's just try to be objective and truthful about this as much as we possibly can, even though it's going to be inherently emotional to 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 read or to talk about these things. But I like that she was just as critical of the the culture of the left online and how 
over the top, many elements of that has gone and how the alt-right is just kind of the, the conservative reaction to what it saw as the left culture taking over online. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, you know, part of a, just a, a larger um, pattern of, like you said, reactions and um, equal, equal, but opposite reactions um, that the right and the left in probably just generally speaking in, in every society, but certainly in the United States, um, you know, like the left achieves like some kind of homogeny uh, or some kind of like, uh, you know, majority among academics and like on campus. So the kind of mainstream right forms its own little think tanks and its own little kind of pseudo academic and academic institutions to counter that. Um, the left has like a ground game in terms of like, you know, labor activism and kind of uh, civil rights activism. And so the right kind of develops, you know, these kind of homeschooling movements or the Christian right or whatever, you know, the Tea Party, like all these other things that kind of put boots on the ground in the same way that the left traditionally has. Um, so in many ways, like what the alt-right is, is just another version of that. It's just instead of the mainstream left and the mainstream right kind of echoing each other, it's the kind of fringe, emotionally driven, uh, often youth-driven, anonymous online culture-driven left that has kind of provoked this equal but opposite reaction um, from uh, people who, in many cases, are kind of almost just trolling and joking at first and then kind of like the face grows to fit the mask. Like they start out by joking about putting people in ovens and then suddenly they become actual Nazis yeah. uh, the more they commit to this kind of persona, which, you know, is also very similar to what happens on the left. There's a certain amount of like a young people kind of trying on different identities, but they become so invested in those identities, especially in this online space, um, that that becomes who they really are, the person they are online. And then the person they are in real life is almost secondary. So, I think I'm, I'm more or less by like that line of thinking. I know that a lot of people didn't, and this book got a lot of negative attention just as much as it got positive attention. And most of that negative attention came from, you know, the usual suspects of, I hate, I hate the term like identity politics because I feel like it gets mis misused a lot these days, but there's a kind of like, uh, emotionally hysterical wing of, um, kind of online social media driven activism um, that reacted very uh, negatively, obviously, to this book, since they probably come under fire in it just as much uh, as the as the alt right does. Although more space is definitely uh, spent in explaining the origins of the alt right, and I think it's especially helpful for you know people who aren't as immersed in all of this online culture to have a brief narrative and a kind of rogues gallery of all these different alt-right, alt-light figures. Um, certainly it spares those of us who want to understand these phenomena, you know, the ordeal of going back and listening to, you know, Nazi podcasts or like, you know, reading the Daily Stormer and stuff like that. Like it kind of distills this thinking in a way that we can all access without having to be part of uh, these online culture wars ourselves, which even if we want it to be like, there's, there's just so multifaceted. Of course, there are some things we're going to miss out on. Yeah, of course. And it's really accessible and it is very much, I, I mean, I, I know there's another, uh, say, I think we're going to end up talking about it. I don't remember if I actually made the final reading list of uh, a normie's guide to the alt-right. And this could just as easily have been the title of this book because it is very, uh, I hesitate to use the word basic, yeah. <laughs> but it is, it's very simplistic in the ability to, for anyone, if you've never gone to, if you've never been on 4chan or any variation thereof online, you can understand what she's describing and it does it with a very deft hand and without as much bias as, you know, as, as objective as she could possibly, possibly be. And I thought one of the most one of the most interesting things that this made me think about was how inadvertently politically active children or, I mean, adolescents have become. Because, I, I mean, for my whole life, it, you hear, let's get the kids, like, let's get the youth vote out because, you know, young people generally don't vote. 18 and 25 year olds, like, they just don't vote. And you have these awkwardly uncool campaigns of rock the vote and things like that to try to make voting or 
participating in politics seem cool. And this is what it looks like when immature people participate in politics, even though they didn't intend to, I don't think. I don't think they intended to influence the culture so much that it manifested politically. They just created their own culture, and it just started uh, permeating everywhere. And I guess, in a way, it's a cautionary tale of be careful what you wish for of giving voice to people who just aren't sophisticated enough to understand that there are going to be ramifications for the things that they're espousing. I don't know if that made sense. No, it does. I mean, I think that this idea that like there's a certain level of maturity and a certain level of um, uh, a certain type of, of, of restrained and temperate personality that is, is almost not, not required for political discourse, but it's certainly for political discourse to be meaningful. Like those people have to kind of be in the majority um, and have the the loudest and most powerful uh, megaphones in front of them. Uh, I just, you know, this is a very snobbish claim to make, but I think that if, if, any, if, if any conclusion seems reasonable given the last two to three years of American political culture, I think that's it. Um, for all of the complaints, often exceptionally justified and uh, even, you know, under undervalued complaints about uh, the so-called mainstream media, I would say like the, the media, uh, uh, both in print and on television and even online, that is, um, you know, part of these kind of corporate structures of ownership um, and the, the kinds of important stories they stop from getting into the public sphere um, either by design or just because of their own unconscious kind of biases. Um, for all the criticism that's very valid of that kind of stuff, there is something to be said for having gatekeepers. There is something to be said for raising the stakes of participating in political discussion. Um, if you can have a significant impact on social media with no credentials, hiding behind an anonymous or kind of fake persona, I, you know, to some extent, anonymity and using pseudonyms and all the rest of it has always been part of political culture. I mean, look at the, the Federalist Papers are all written under pseudonym, but that's not quite what we're talking about here. Um, because, you know, even if you're writing under an assumed name or writing under anonymously, if you're writing in the kind of traditional so-called legacy media, you have to have a certain amount of experience. You have to have a certain level of, uh, intellectual and also emotional maturity and development to get a hearing. And again, of course, there are problems with that, but, you know, the democratization of not just the franchise, not just participating in politics through voting and through, you know, talking to your elected representatives, but participating in public discussions that have a, a, a wide and deep reach um, that you can just kind of do that if you're tenacious enough and you have a Twitter account uh, or you're, you know, you're, you can gather enough people who are like-minded or maybe just curious on a forum like 4chan or Reddit. Um, it's hard to, it's, it's hard not to lament, at least in part, the decline of the kinds of gatekeepers and the kinds of hurdles that used to keep for the most part, like dangerously hysterical people out of mainstream politics. And just the fact that we even, you know, if, if, if someone had told me five years ago that, you know, we would be having public um, kind of nationwide discussions in publications like the Harper's and the Atlantic and the New York Times and the Post about people like Richard Spencer, like I would have been like, that's fucking insane. Like, how could that even happen? And of course, now it has. I definitely think that we have seen, I mean, I hope we haven't, but to this point right now, we've kind of seen the death of the expert or at least the, the the society's value of that expert, and I know I had a couple of thoughts about this. Where I think the original, at least if I'm just using uh, the book kind of as a touchstone here, that the original uh, dismissal of that we don't need, as you referred at the the legacy media, we don't need print media, we do need broadcast media, we can create our own. I think that was kind of dominated originally by the left, where it became um, blog after blog and upworthy and 
all those you know all those different sites that were about pretty much about self empowerment and identity empowerment and writing from the perspective that we're oppressed in a way and i think it largely uh came out of a, a desire one to play up legitimate um problems within the culture that they have seen but two just to kind of thrust their themselves or their views into the spotlight and it comes across as on the darker parts of the web people were uh getting really critical and frustrated by what they saw as the replacement of the legacy media in these self-important sjw uh snowflakes i mean i'm just using their language yeah 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 and and how disturbing and cringeworthy a lot of that stuff was and so they started creating their own counterculture to the counterculture that the left created to the dying mainstream and in a way it's been long enough perhaps that what we've seen as this rise of the worst elements of the right is the accreditation within that counterculture. That's where, you know, Richard Spencer comes from. That's where all these other figures come from, is they have existed and succeeded within that culture so much that they have become the accredited sources amongst the unaccredited sources. And it's such a far cry from what the internet could be and kind of a disturbing realization of all the potential that the internet has had because the early days of the internet i mean they feel like one it's just a bygone era but two the wild west mentality of this can be whatever we want it to be and there's very few restrictions as to what we can do and there were people who looked at this as a utopian level that it was freeing to the extent that we could create our own digital utopia of whatever we wanted the world to be, it can manifest itself online. And that this is the result of what we've manifested, of what we've wrought, is this hyper partisan, hyper culturally partisan of this is how I identify versus I can't stand the way you identify. So I'm going to identify as somebody who can't stand you. And what we have become is. It, it's it's really demoralizing in a way that this is what human beings do with as great a gift as the internet could have been. Yeah, it's interesting that um, you know I, I could go be even further back than that, but uh, the very first chapter after the introduction, um, Nagel kind of starts up uh, with a, a summary of um, kind of the last wave or the last wave so far of kind of like um internet utopianism which is in the in the bygone days the distant past of the early 2010s you know like seven or eight years ago um yeah where you know you saw things like the arab spring um and occupy and even you know as as ridiculous as it's some kind sometimes could be like the you know the anonymous movement and the ubiquitous um quote-unquote v mask which i think that's how most people thought of it not as the guy fox mask yeah but the potential that that seemed to hold politically and just how quickly that dream died, um, not just because those movements by and large failed, at least so far, at least kind of imminently, although their true legacy has yet to unpack itself because it has been so recent, but uh, also because, um, you know, those technologies and those, you know, we're still talking about like proprietary technologies like Facebook, Twitter, etc. Like these are not... You know, they can be they can be perhaps used to drive democratic movements, but they are not inherently themselves democratic. They're owned by, you know, these monolithic uh, Silicon Valley companies. Um, but I think that that kind of hangover from that last uh, wave of um, kind of technology and well, kind of web driven ac uh, activism goes a long way in explaining the the kind of acrimony that crept in later on. Um, by later on, I mean like a couple of years afterwards. Mm -hmm. And it's, I don't know if, if it's, you know, if it was the disillusionment with those movements that led to um, the kind of toxic, anonymous, troll-driven online culture, or if 
that is what caused the disillusionment. I don't really know what came first. I'm probably not immersed enough in these kinds of communities. But we could go back even further, you know, to the the 90s when people started talking about, you know, cyberspace and um, a lot of these terms that came from actually dystopian tech uh, writing and kind of like futurist writing, like William Gibson, like he, you know, invented a lot of these terms in his writing. And they were actually dystopian kind of like uh, kind of warnings about the potentials of technology. But then those terms got picked up in the mainstream as kind of, you know, positive or, you know, potentially utopian concepts. Um, but I think we had this conversation when we last met in person. Do you remember what well, I asked if you remembered like Second Life? Did you ever, did you, do you remember talking about this? Like, and you're like, what was Second Life? I have no idea what that was. Because I went back and looked it up to make sure I didn't just imagine it. <laughs> sure. Did you ever, did you ever look into what that was? No, I didn't actually, but that was the idea that you can have a totally different life online than you did in person, right? That's the whole concept of it. Yeah, and it was actually a kind of like um, uh, MMO part P. What are those like World of Warcraft? What are those called? MMO PRGs, uh, MMO RPGs, massive multiplayer online role playing games. I shouldn't know that. So it was like it was like that. You would have like an avatar, so you know, it would be walking around this imaginary space, and of course, a lot of it just had to do with like meeting strangers that you know, lived a continent away and of course there's lots of like weird sex stuff going on because it's the internet um but you know you would have you know you could be like a doughy you know like the typical kind of like you know cave dwelling uh kind of on dude who's online all the time and have like a you know kind of like sexy alter ego that was in this second life world and i feel like that encompassed a lot of what people 10 15 years ago thought the world of cyberspace which is not even a term you hear used that often mm. um would be like as you would have your you know ordinary life boring life in reality and then you would have this exciting um kind of rich and interesting and kind of transgressive life online and it seems like that vision has been replaced by like what people really want to do with their second life what people really want to do in these virtual spaces is just torture other people and, you know, do and say and enact like horrible real life acts, whether it's doxing someone or, you know, sending death threats or, you know, subjecting someone to just constant harassment as has happened to so many people, mostly women in the last five years or so, um, that that is what, you know, this fantasy life actually has come to entail. Um, and what I was saying before, what we were both saying before about the face growing to fit the mask and a lot of this stuff kind of starting ironically, I think that is, you know, true that for a lot of people being in these subcultures, left or right, begins as a kind of fantasy, begins as a form of role play, and then it becomes who they are, um, which is alarming, but, you know, with hindsight also seems totally predictable. And I think that's part of what the story that Nagel is telling is the story of like, you know, the blurring of the line between what is play acting online and this potentially second life and then what is reality. And you have a bunch of people that have lost the ability to tell the difference. Yeah, I don't know if it's simply the anonymity aspect of the internet or the ease of accessibility that you can just get on it anywhere that it starts to lose the idea that it has tangible real world implications. I mean, there's a part where she's talking where uh, she's quoting Weave, who I uh, was a the fucking villain, yeah, yeah, a 4chan guy, and he was talking about he's he sees trolling as satirical performance art. He compared himself to Socrates and and Loki, I mean, which is absurd. He saw himself as like an Andy Kaufman type guy, and yeah, and to an extent, like there's there's a there's a very real logic behind that. That the whole point of uh, a satirist like that is to highlight what is important by mocking what isn't, right? You're mocking the fact that people are taking themselves this seriously. And to an extent, okay, fine, but the complete disconnect from the fact that it, it can lead to suicides, that it leads to legitimate harassment beyond annoying tweets but to people showing up at people's houses or people planning your like threatening to murder you i mean that that goes so far beyond uh comic relief to the problem that i i can't imagine 
that how someone could be that detached from reality or if they just choose not to think about it that way or if it goes over this weird psychotic line where it becomes kind of on-demand reality where you can it's like choose your own world where you can make something happen in the world by tweeting in the right way or posting on the right form and one of the most starkingly inane and seemingly innocuous examples was Rick rolling. Like <laughs> this is kind of the first time that I can remember. And she talks about this where that was mainstream trolling. Like that was that mm-hmm. culture succeeding for the first time. And it was in a completely harmless and generally funny way where you're going to trick somebody into thinking they're going to see something and you give them something different and you're mocking their expectations and how it went, we went from that to people killing themselves and people getting doxxed. It's disturbing that we're in a way because Rick Rowling went so culturally became so culturally accepted within every aspect of the mainstream that in a way it, it implicates all of us in being willing to troll one another and we're not responsible for the heightening of it, but we should have seen that as an inevitability. Yeah. And it's, it, you're right. As benign as, you know, Rick Rowling was and as, you know, when it started out, it was actually funny and it actually did have like, it gave like Rick Astley, like a, like a career, like a second like career. And yeah. stuff. Like I know people have gone to see him. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, and I'm, I'm sure he puts on a hell of a show, but um, like the, you're right. That idea that um, that we should have seen the means there, and I, I've, every time I you know come back to this topic and, and doing all the reading for this season, I keep coming back to the um, the very famous maxim that I think you and I probably both heard first in film school from um, Marshall McLuhan that the medium is the message, which I never really got what that meant, or I always thought that was kind of dumb because i just you know thought like no the message is the message like what you say the content like that is the thing like the means are just kind of incidental writing an essay doing a podcast appearing on television like what you're saying is really but no i think in especially in reflecting on everything that's happened in the last five to ten years like the shape the the vessel the means of transmitting the message changes the message and it changes you as the person sending the message and i think this kind of anonymous troll culture is a good example of that because you have people who begin, and I'm not the first person to make this analogy, and I, I, I'm sorry that I can't remember who originated it, um, but people who are kind of like doing what we all do when we're driving, you know, it's just like, you know, we get suddenly mad at someone, we'll flip someone the bird, we'll hop, we'll like get in someone's face the way that we would never do that if they like bumped into us on the subway or something. Um and it's kind of that like thrill of being anonymous and you can just kind of like let your id out. You can just kind of, you know, be as pissed off or be as um, kind of mischievous as you want to. And the means that are there for like a harmless prank are clearly just lend themselves to perhaps, uh, you know, something that goes a little bit further and then goes a little bit further. Um, and it gives people, the user, an opportunity to transform themselves without realizing it from a kind of mischief making as as we've said like a loking like kind of troublemaker um to someone who is genuinely a malevolent figure and you know nagel like uh, made this connection in um kind of the more deeper historical analysis parts of her book i think in like the second and third chapter she talks about like the 60s counterculture and stuff yeah like it always makes me think of like some of the um like the street uh, performances and kind of the performance art of like the 60s counterculture you know like I always think back to that Joan Didion uh, essay the, her most famous one from the 60s uh, Slashing Towards Bethlehem and there's a section in there where she describes um, like a like a kind of performance art hippie street art thing that's meant to be transgressive and meant to kind of like you know troll people essentially kind of wake them up and it's a bunch of like white leftists like in blackface and people are like so perplexed and like so angered by it. And it's, it's just in such like obviously like bad taste. But I think there's something similar that happens here in like a more immersive way. Like you start with the, the thinking that you're going to just like get people's attention, get them to wake up, do something that's going to like provoke them for its own sake. Or you convince yourself that provoking people has a kind of value in and of itself. 
and before you know it, you've, you've, you've internalized all of these values and beliefs that originally you were just using as a way of getting a rise out of people. I don't know that that seems like a maybe too pat but plausible account of how this stuff happens. One of the things that's really frustrating to read was how overtly the idea of shock value was used for progressive purposes for, you know, decades if not generations and how that, I mean it's not it's something that always felt like it belonged to the left, at least, you know, in my lifetime, in my experience of American culture, because the left was rallying against a mainstream culture that was fairly conservative in a lot of ways. And now it feels like the left is 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 getting a taste of its own medicine in a very disturbing way, because I think we've mentioned at some point in the first season the idea that the the left has won the culture war and the right has won the financial war and now that the left has won this culture war you're seeing the right lash back and trying to establish its own foothold in that culture mostly it's not even specifically anti-left it's anti-right because the right isn't hasn't done a good enough job in countering the left so now they've taken up the mantle to go even farther and they're going to use the tactics that the left used to win to fight back and it's disturbing to see what human beings will do to one another when they believe that they're in the right. Yeah. And I think what you're saying about um, the alt-right, you know, emerging in many ways as a reaction against the mainstream right, as opposed to, as you said, as, as opposed to being anti-left is something that Nagel gets into, but you could almost write like an entire book about that topic and the kind of internecine battles on the right like in and, of, in and of itself and part of that is legitimate right like the mainstream right especially under bush and especially you know when it comes to things like the the war in iraq and all of the other um kind of failed ventures connected with the war on terror the mainstream uh republican conservatism really has lost all of its moral authority. Like I can't, I can't imagine how anyone could take it seriously anymore, although, you know, people still do. Um, but also some of that is, like you said, like a reaction against um, what is seen as kind of like a, a cultural failure that the conservative movement has always kind of just been a way of getting the base, getting like conservative voters in the voting booth. But when push comes to shove, it's really just about lowering taxes and like abolishing the, you know, estate tax and shit like that, that affects almost no one. And that sense of being betrayed or conned, um, there's a lot of that that is just like personal and hysterical and emotional. Like, you know, you think you're under siege from, you know, people from the third world, you're like so anxious about changing demographics, like all of that stuff can, you know, easily be not exclusively, obviously, but a lot of that can kind of just exist in a person's imagination alongside uh, the very real complaints about um, the direction that conservative policy has taken and is taking uh, the United States in terms of, uh, you know, the kind of economic realities that we all deal with. I think that when I when I read uh, like Nagel's account, especially of um, the the kind of rise of the hard alt right and you know the kind of trolling that people did um, in the Republican primary, um, you know, calling people cuckservatives and stuff like that. Like, I don't want to sympathize with those people. But it's also hard to ignore the fact that a lot of the figures in the mainstream conservative movement that they were attacking have not just defended, but also helped to implement like some of the worst things that have happened in my adult lifetime. And the war on terror is just the is just the most prominent example of all that. I mean, yeah, there are legitimate failings of the mainstream political base on 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 both sides and it it's i i think we have seen the extremification which i know isn't a word <laughs> of of both sides to call themselves to call their party out i mean you saw this with uh bernie sanders supporters or you know very far progressives who were very critical of mainstream democrats for not supporting him which became a whole different thing when people kind of even went 
farther left than Bernie supporters to say that Bernie supporters were uh, dumb bros and, you know, dub, dubbing Bernie bros and that whole, they're calling them sexist for not supporting Clinton. Like, it, it got really weird. And you saw, I mean, and, and we're, I mean, we're kind of beating the horse a little bit that the right has gone that much farther right to criticize its own. And I think the biggest takeaway um, that I got from this was just how little ideas matter anymore. I mean, she talked about Milo a bunch of times, and she referred to his successes on the uh, university uh, circuit doing doing lectures and how he would win every battle because he would ask, he would challenge, you know, people who would come and protest him, that he would challenge them to, all right, prove me wrong, and they couldn't because it's gotten to the point where rhetoric has triumphed over reason, where the belief that you're right is more important than proving that you're right. And this is the manifestation of ideas don't matter, like logic doesn't matter the emotion matters and this is one a a backlash of people identifying that you're just acting emotionally there's no reason behind what you're saying and i'm not going to justify your views because you feel this way and the other side just seems to be doubling down on this is how i feel about it and there's the rest of us kind of in the middle who are like this is just insanity coming from every possible direction which is how i feel that we kind of live in a very, in a time that really hammers home just how fragile the human mind and, as a on a broader scale, the the social consciousness is in its ability to justify its own behavior and malign its opposition. Yeah, and I think that like the the way you're saying like the kind of belief that is almost like it has a kind of like religious intensity. And everything becomes about like the clash of kind of movements and especially the class of the clash of personalities and nothing is about argument or evidence. As dispiriting as that is, it's also, you know, like a lot of, I think what both, I hate to, I hate to go into like the both sides thing, but like, cause I don't think that, you know, the alt-right is the equivalent of the kind of so-called identity politics and left or however you want to characterize them, which, you know, those, the people we're talking about, you could say that they're further left um, but in many ways, like they're the ones who are attacking, you know, the so-called Bernie bros and stuff like that. It's hard to place them in the spectrum because, you know, like you said, it's not really about ideas. It's about the intensity of their belief and the degree to which they personally identify with certain movements, certain pu- prominent public figures, whether it's Hillary Clinton or whether it's, you know, some uh, personality online or whether it's, you know, fictional characters in some cases, um, the like the intense degree of personal identification has not just obscured, um, you know, more kind of I hate to another word I hate to use, but I don't know where like you know kind of like civil or at least um, kind of grounded argument or discussion of you know policy or ideas in the culture or whatever it might be, but there seems to be a total lack of or you know uninterest in material reality and material solutions like things that would actually improve people's lives in a kind of measurable way like those kinds of policies that in many ways are like class-based but not exclusively um because certainly like you know there are lots of things having to do with you know foreign policy and um things having to do with like access to information that are not you know that would kind of benefit everyone across the board but the the hysteria that surrounds these kind of controversies on campus it's not just a question of a lack of evidence or kind of disregard for logic or reason or argument um the actual politics of it the actual political outcomes get lost it's, it is kind of like a form of anti-politics which i think we may have talked about last season which i think comes from chomsky you know for a lot of people in the kind of tumblr wing of the left you know this is just like these are like the black helicopters and you know the uh you know the the wild conspiracy theories about just things that are like in the pop culture or in popular culture that are like trying to you know reprogram our minds or that we're being brainwashed like it's a kind of 
uh, a politics that has no actual grounding in reality is all about kind of signaling certain identifying um, kind of features of like kind of what side you're on, which tribe you're in, which movement you're in. Um, it becomes about kind of what is personally, emotionally satisfying to be participating in as opposed to actual outcomes. Um, I don't know if I'm kind of getting to getting to the point that I, I want to make, but um, this idea of, you know, someone like Milo, who is all about, you know, just kind of trolling on a, you know, a kind of national stage scale, um, the idea that he can, in Nagel's estimation, which I think is, you know, not entirely accurate, but to fair that he can kind of win arguments with the campus left, um, just shows that the campus left didn't really show up to win or lose an argument. They showed up for the drama of showing up. They showed up for the emotional and psychological satisfaction of having a confrontation. And in many cases, like these right-wingers do that as well. But that kind of personalizing of all these issues, as opposed to thinking in terms of people's actual material condition, um, it fits very neatly into... Uh, a view of the world that has been shaped by pop culture and has been shaped by kind of like narratives in the popular culture. We've talked about this before with like, you know, people in, who believe in really bizarre conspiracy theories, kind of like, you know, uh, identifying with popular culture and like their kind of like conspiracy videos are always like, you know, uh, scored with music from popular films. Like, I think there's something like that going on um, in the the kind of, you know, the this tumblr or identity politics left that we're talking about um does that make sense does that sound right i don't know if i made got to where i wanted to go with that but yeah i mean absolutely there's a there's a a couple of things i wrote down uh when i was reading this uh two brief quotes that i can't remember i didn't write down who they were attributed to but that i mean these are critiques of the left that they've started to recognize diversity over economic inequality as a critique of how the left has kind of abandoned its own values for virtue signaling. And another part was they don't care about politics. They just care about being witnesses to suffering. And those are legitimate critiques of how the left has abandoned the idea of reason. And this is such a, I don't know, this is such a frustrating time for me just being someone who I thought, well, eventually reason wins. Eventually, in the in the war of ideas, the the better one will succeed. And it just doesn't feel like we live in those times. Maybe that maybe those times never existed and never will. The idea that you present a well reasoned argument, and if your argument is more structurally sound than the opposition's, then your then your idea will take hold for a while and we'll give it a try. But that doesn't... It. I've rarely had a conversation with a human being online or in person where at the end of it, they've said, you know what? I think I got to change my mind about this or I'm going to have to change the way I look at this because the way you presented what you said was pretty hard to argue against. I, I can't tell you how few times I've had a conversation like that. And I'm someone who likes to think of myself as a guy who can create a really well-structured argument that can make something convincing. And maybe this is just an arrogant thing of me for me to think that if I can't do that, how can how is anybody doing that? I think most people aren't even remotely committed to the idea of a good a, a good idea should win. It's they're very much committed to my side should win. I think winning has become its own reason, its own justification, as opposed to winning for the right reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think you see that um, in the the kind of just general like MAGA people online. And again, I try to like, I try to increasingly in the last year, especially, I try to like stay out of social media. So I'm kind of like working from you know, stuff that I've read about online uh, conflicts as opposed to actual participation or observation. But, you know, you see a lot of like what their politics are kind of centered on is just like, how do we, how do we, uh, how do we get those sweet liberal tears? Like, how do we, you know, piss these people off? Like, how can we induce like kind of agony and anger in our ideological opponents 
as opposed to win some kind of actual material victory, which I don't even think they know what that looks like at all anymore. And I think that there is, that is an equal and opposite reaction to, um, you know, just wanting to crush or to anger, um, or to provoke kind of pathetic reactions from, you know, white dude bros, uh, you know, that from the Tumblr left, like that, that's, that's what, that's what left wing politics exists to do is to make people who seem to represent the, the, you know, the powers that be in society, um, get upset online, but just to provoke that reaction, like that is an end in itself. And there is no material transformation of the world we actually live in that we are like working towards, which I think you're right. I mean, I don't, I think that the idea that we make progress as a society through argument, which, um, seem to animate some of the, the better angels of, uh, the kind of new atheist movement, which I'm not a, you know, fan or supporter of, you know, in many ways by any means, but like, you know, when like Christopher Hitchens was like a dominant figure in a lot of discussions online and Nagel talks about this, like how, you know, certain part of the fan base for people like him and the other new atheists kind of like mutated into uh, more of like the anti-feminist wing of um, the alt-rights or the alt-light maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he, his whole thing was that this is how we make progress. Like you have to, you can't have light without heat. You have to have a public argument in order for ideas to move forward. And that by, you know, duking it out in the public sphere, as you said, the, the most plausible, the most well-reasoned, the most humane, the most mutually beneficial ideas and policies and views of things would somehow win out. And it's, I find it, like you do, impossible to believe that. And maybe it was naive to ever think that way, but certainly it's the Gramscian struggle. It's the struggle for cultural hegemony. It's making sure that your movement or that your worldview wins out as opposed to is right that seems to make the transformative difference. Um, and that can be disheartening on one hand, but on the other hand, if you think people will actually benefit, if you think it will actually make people's lives better for your side to win out in the public sphere, then maybe you can, you know, kind of let go of wanting to win an argument per se um, and instead, you know, think about like winning the material resources and winning the power, getting the power to implement the policies and to implement, uh, to kind of help do the things that will help build the world that you think ought to exist, uh, which is kind of a, I don't know, there's something disheartening about making everything about power as opposed to ideas and evidence and reason and, you know, these kind of like enlightenment ideals of the, the kind of benefits of civil conversation and of, you know, open discussion, uh, but it's hard. It's hard to. It's hard to think that way anymore. Maybe again. Maybe it was just naive to ever hold on to that view. Well, I mean, there's many things about what we're talking about that are quite disheartening. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there really is. There are very few like uh, silver linings in this in all these discussions. I don't know if we're gonna find very many, other than maybe this is uh, just kind of the the human play that we're all a part of, and just. Yeah, you know, try to enjoy the show as best you can. Um, I don't know. I, I've always wanted to believe that human beings are capable of creating something good for you know the the overwhelming majority of people. But the more technologically enriched our lives become, meaning the more power we're given, right? The ease of accessibility to everything that our ancestors could not even possibly have imagined. The less we seem capable of creating a world that any of us should want to be living in. Hey there. While you're listening to this podcast or other Just a Radio Network podcasts, check out yesiamshow.biz and take a look at everything we do. From stand-up trivia to comedy, music, and more. Sign up for our mailing list at yesiamshow.biz. We talked about doing the alt-right uh, well, at least four months ago as our topic for the, the second season. 
And I don't know about you, but I don't want to say my enthusiasm has waned on the topic, but I was far more intrigued by the by the extreme right back when we talked about doing it. Like I, I that was back when I was reading the Daily Stormer just about every day. I would listen to uh, David Duke's podcast, not that which is not something I recommend doing unless you're just really fascinated to hear about how Jews are responsible for everything. Is this is this like a like a kind of just like like Jewish masochism on your part? Like you just like I want to I want to hear about how much cliche. better my life should be than it really is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. as you just mentioned, the topic of the alt right has to an extent been done to death, at least from the perspective of how do we explain the alt right? What like p- explaining to people who've never heard of it? What what just ha- Kind of as a big, much broader publication of what happened by Hillary Clinton, right? Explaining what the last year was and why to to normal people. Yeah. But I think one of the things I I want to get into the season, one of the things I could st- think we could still accomplish is this third dimensional painting, as opposed to here are these villains, here's how they became stupid, and here's how we should ignore them. Identifying what about them is sympathetic, and maybe sympathetic is too strong of a word, especially considering some of the beliefs that they espouse, but what about them is human? What about them is also us? What about them are we somewhat responsible for? I mean, we're not responsible for other people's actions, but to pretend that our own actions don't have ramifications. I mean, that's just willful ignorance. So you should probably expect, I mean, we're going to do, I think 10 or 11 episodes this season. I, I I mean, we know how many, I just can't think of off the top of my head. It's 11. It's 11 episodes. Okay. I think so. Yeah. So <laughs> I think this, this, uh, the intro ended up being longer than I think we anticipated. We thought we were going to kind of do like a 20 to 30 minute conversation. I ended up kind of being, uh, you know, an entire episode where we kind of introduced the whole topic. And I think, um, it's, I don't want to call it important because nothing about this podcast should, should come across as important, but it kind of gives a pretty good idea of what we're going to be getting into going forward. And each episode is going to be, uh, structured around a figure within the alt-right or a figure that represents a broader, a, a broader community that they represent. So instead of just being, here's the essay we're talking about this week, it's going to be, here's the person that we're talking about this week, or here are the people we're talking about this week. And there's going to be a, a selection of essays that you can read if you want as a way of enriching your experience of listening to essay questions starring Joe and Josh. Uh, <laughs> or you can just listen to essay questions starring Joe and Josh and just enjoy the dulcet tones. Yes. Uh, it is completely up to so you. Dulcet. Um, hopefully you enjoy listening uh, to this at least as much as we uh, enjoy recording it, which is to say somewhat. <laughs> uh, you can email us at podcast at gmail, or you can find us on, uh, unfortunately, you can find us on the usual social media suspects. So do that if you really felt compelled to participate, and y- you shouldn't. But if you wanted to, you're more than welcome. Yeah, that's going to be a constant refrain of like, social media is evil and should be destroyed. Uh, follow us on Instagram. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, of course, um, rate us and review us on the, the podcast listening app of your choice. And, uh, we will see you back here for episode one, where we're going to talk about nineties paleo conservative figure, uh, Samuel T. Francis, uh, one of the, the godfathers of white nationalism. It's going to be a real barn burner. So you want to be there for that.